Welcome everyone to the Delta Flyers. Yet another episode of the Delta Flyers with Robbie and myself. And this week, our special guest is none other than Armin Shimmerman. Welcome, Armin. Welcome, well, Armin. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. This is very exciting because, uh, as a lot of you know, Armin's going to be joining us. We're still in the SAG after strike. In the future, what's exciting is Armin is going to be joining us for part two of our our episode rewatch and we're going to be talking about a three-year uh, mission a three-year <laughs> mission yes with the show that armin was on the, yes I, I have to I'm say excited. i'm i'm super excited yes we've had terry on right before you know we were able to talk to her a little bit in one of our our yeah. delta flyer episodes and now we have armin and i'm so excited to have armin because in a way armin was really my entree into the franchise That's that we right. were all part That's of because right. he was the very first actor that i met and you and were so scared in that I, episode I, oh my so gosh <laughs> i was i would not and not only not only in, in the first first scene that i shot but the first person that i met when i came out of wardrobe they brought me onto your stage and i met you you were the first oh, really? actor yes and then that's when you said hey kid come on back and let me tell you let me show you the ropes and that's when we went to your trailer and you told me about check oh, your force wow. calls check this check that accounting uh, is that, hired that's when i was a union official as yes. well. <laughs> but again you're you're Oh, you're, you, how personable you were to me, how kind you were to me. And then and then shooting that first scene when I was scared, I was literally about to poop in my pants. I was that scared. And you were just like a calm, you were like a heavy blanket that was thrown across me where I felt like, oh, okay, I can do this. So I'm equally, I'm super, I think I'm more excited than anyone to have you as part of our uh, our team. So thank, thank you so you, much. Garrett. That's very sweet. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. But for this episode, we want to dive into you know, your formative years. And from what I can see off of Wikipedia, and you can correct any of this if it's wrong, that you were born in Lakewood, New Jersey. This is what it says. That's correct. That's and correct. neither of your parents were in the industry. Your mother was an accountant. Your father was a was a painter, house painter. House painter. Yep. Mm -hmm. And wow. then at the age of 15, you guys moved from Jersey to Los Angeles. And this is where the question begins. What predicated that move? Why did that happen? It was an incredible feat that my mother performed. My parents divorced when I was seven years old. Uh, and so my mom became a single parent, uh, bringing up two boys, myself and my brother. She had the help of her mother, who moved from Cleveland to uh, New Jersey, to Lakewood, uh, in order to help bring up her, her grandchildren. But I was, a, as you said, 15, and it was getting time to think about college. And my mother was really poor, and uh, she looked around the colleges on the East Coast, and, and, and they were just too expensive for her. She did a little bit more research, and she found out that the UC system, the University of California system, was incredibly cheap, almost free. But <laughs> in order to, to get that free uh, entrance into the UC system, uh, you had to be a resident of California. You had to be a resident for two years. So my mother bravely and boldly packed up her two boys, her, her mother, everything she had, I don't know how she did it, uh, into a VW bug. Oh my gosh. And, and drove herself and us across country from New Jersey to Santa Monica, California, uh, and moved to California so that her eldest son could go to college. And eventually I did go to UCLA. It's amazing. But when he talks about that move, that sounds like the plot 
to the beginning of the story with Ralph Macchio in it, where Ralph, Ralph Macchio, the single mother, drives across from Jersey to California, where he oh, learns yeah. martial arts, right? He learns I, karate. I, I didn't uh, learn martial arts. No, you didn't learn martial arts <laughs> when you came over. But but still, for her to make that move, that is huge. It was wow. huge. I, I look back on that and uh, enormously grateful. She changed my life. It was an enormous sacrifice. As a poor working mother, she had three jobs. She gave up three three jobs. She gave up uh, all of her friends. She gave up what was what, which, what was wow. uh, familiar to her yeah, and, yeah. and did this for the sake of putting her son into college. And uh, at the time, uh, I didn't know that uh, that really was the reason I came to find that out later on. That is so moving. But it was uh, absolutely the best thing to do. Uh, well, it, it shows this was this that you and your brother were paramount in your mother's mind in terms of that chess that chess game that we call life. And she, she, she literally saw five moves ahead. She's like, okay, if I get him over here, residency will be established and boom, we'll be able to get that amazing, um, you know, low, low cost tuition. Yeah. I think at that time, UCLA cost per quarter, $60 a quarter. We share the same alma mater. And when I was at UCLA, I was a 16 year old freshman and I was paying out of state tuition because I wasn't from California. Right. And per quarter, it had raised more than $60 by the time I was a freshman in 85. It was then $400 a quarter. So 400 and there's three quarters, that's 1200 for your entire year, oh right? Still, still very low for your tuition. But because I was out of state, it was four times more. So it was 1700. Right. And so what I did was I petitioned, um, you had to be there for two years. And so I asked for, uh, I, I stayed for, after two years, I came in and I said, hey, hey, I've been here two years. I want in-state tuition now. And they said, well, because you're still a minor, it goes to your parents' location. <laughs> and they, and so I still had to pay the exorbitant amount four times more. So what my solution was, I'm only going to go part-time. I mean, so I ended up going half of the time and paying less than the 1700, but I was, you know, duped. I mean, I was such a young kid as a freshman that I was duped by that system of you, you are still a minor. So you are, even though you've been here for two years, your parents are still in Tennessee. So you have to pay that but it's cool that we both went to the same school though it both is. Very cool. we we may have had the same teachers what was your major gary if i may ask? my major yes it was pre-med when i got there and then i switched to um, poli sci then i switched to econ then i switched to history then i switched again to east asian studies but i did all my um upper division uh electives in theater though so i was there um and you were in the theater department the entire time no sir that? i was an english uh major uh with uh uh, who who went over to the theater department on a regular basis and auditioned for their plays and magically got cast. By the time you became a student there, yeah. they didn't allow non-theater majors to audition for plays. I think I was the last. I think I broke the system. So because he kept giving me lead parts uh, and I wasn't a theater major, I think that pissed off a lot of theater majors. Oh, oh yeah. No, they're not happy about that. Um, yeah. Who was there when you were there? I'm trying to well, think. Of most important is a man named David Rhodes, who was my, my Shakespeare teacher at UCLA. He is the original uh, inspiration. And, and ironically, he is also responsible for Patrick Stewart being uh, Picard. What? What? Uh, tell that story. Just go into that. <laughs> Okay, so uh, David Rhodes uh, is from Texas. Uh, I don't know for sure, but I think there may have been some oil money in his family because uh -huh. he always lived rather well. Hmm. 
And one of the things he did at UCLA as an English professor was to bring in actors from England to help with the teaching of Shakespeare at UCLA. And he would bring in every year, he would bring in some English actors and, and, and I'm not sure what they did. I guess they did some sort of performance in a classroom, but uh, Bob Justman, who was Roddenberry's co-producer, uh, came to one of these classes for what reason I don't know and uh, saw Patrick Stewart performing in David's classroom and went back to Roddenberry and said, I think I found the captain. Oh my gosh. Wow. So we have to thank David Rhodes for that. That's incredible. For the first six months, he lived in the shell of David's house that he was building in, in uh, Bel Air. Uh, he lived uh, in the construction area. He, his wife, his kids, they all lived in that construction area for the first six months until they found a place to live. Wow. That wouldn't happen anymore. No. Wow. wow. I had no idea. What a stroke of luck and timing and also a testament to David Rhodes taste and the kinds of actors that he brought in to inspire the students there. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I had seen it because he had not only Patrick, he had Ian McKellen, he had Judy Dench. He, he had, they were all youngsters. They were all you wow. know, what we were when we were doing that franchise and they were just starting their careers. And so they were, they were very happy to be paid to come over to California and, and uh, think about their careers there while they were doing work for David Rose. So wow. the theater department paid to fly these people the theater, but He's an English teacher. He was an English so, major. So the English department paid to have these actors flown over? Or I don't because, know whether they paid or, or David, David did David because yeah. he came from money. That would make sense too. You know, if you have wow. all this disposable income that yeah. at your disposal, you and you were a teacher, why not bring in the best, right? So, wow, what a great story. Let me go back to you. Your mother made this incredible sacrifice. I'm still touched and so moved by that right. story of your, right. what your mother, her her thinking ahead yeah. as, as much as she did. And as you said, sacrificing her friendships or everything familiar, incredible incredible uh symbol of her love it was an enormous act of self-sacrifice yeah Absolutely. enormous it's so moving and i'm well, so i never heard this story Robbie, but so yeah i was gonna say do you see in the wikipedia it, it says it was his mother who enrolled him in a drama group in an effort to expand his social circle that's so what not, i was getting at Where, what what happened yes so uh my first year in santa monica high school uh, was rather lonely. I was uh, a new person there, and we know what that's like when you're the outsider. And uh, my mother uh, had a distant cousin who was a drama teacher in in Los Angeles. He didn't work at a school per se, but he worked at an organization. Hmm. And she suggested that I that I join uh, this acting group. It, it was just a class, really, that occasionally did productions. And she thought I would make friends there. She got me involved in that. And that's where I sort of got bitten by the bug. And then in addition to that, in my senior year, my English teacher, not David Rhodes, but my high school English teacher, a man named Mr. Jensen, he asked me to audition for The Crucible. And I had never read The Crucible. And I said, sure, I've done a little bit of that in my distant cousin's class. Mm -hmm. And when the casting went up, uh, I saw that I was cast as the role of John Proctor. And uh, I hadn't read the play, so I didn't really know who John Proctor was. I found out that he was the lead in the play. 
and uh, and then I, you know, I went on from there. I have a couple of comments I just want to share. First of all, my son, my youngest, graduated from Santa Monica High, so you're both uh, alumni together of a fabulous high school. By the way, it's a it's an incredible high school. And, in and Santa Monica. may I interject? It, was it called San Mo back then as well when yeah, you Sam were there? Mo. Okay, Sam all right, yeah, it's still San Mo. Okay, San Mo. Yeah. The other thing I want to share is, you know, I got into theater because of a move. We moved from Washington, D.C. to Atlanta, Georgia, and I didn't know anybody just like you. It was very lonely. I didn't I didn't have any friends. And my mother suggested that this little dance studio where she had signed my my little sister up for like ballet for four year olds. This little dance studio had a children's theater that needed uh, munchkins for the Wizard of Oz. And she said, they they need a hundred munchkins and you should go do this theater thing because you'll meet all these kids. It was the same, it was the same goal. Just like go do this theater, not because my mother cared about theater or you know, had any agenda. She didn't want you to be lonely. She wanted you to have friends. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the beginning. It did exactly what she planned through my my junior high school and high school years. That was my family. Those those kids in the in the youth theater, the children's theater, are still some of my closest friends to this day. And did uh, your parents, both your parents, did they regret uh, having <laughs> that way? Because my mother certainly did. Oh, <laughs> she did. Yeah. It, no. It, at the beginning of my career, she was she was very worried that this was this was going to be a. Uh, a fruitless sort of occupation for me. And it was years after I graduated from college that uh, I was lucky enough to do a Broadway show. And she came to the Broadway show. She said, well, maybe you could make a living. Maybe through. this is going to work <laughs> maybe out. Maybe you could. But, wow. but Armin, that uh, that hesitation from your parent, your mother, it's it's interesting because I do find that when it comes to Chinese families and Jewish families, there's a lot of similarity. And they're both looking at the arts as not the way to go. Like you exactly. either go into medicine or law or business. That's it. Those are your choices. All they want you to do is to be financially secure. That's the it. That's not the... financially secure. Exactly. So we have and that it's... parallel. And I love the fact that you have the parallel with Robbie, that both of your mothers were integral in having both Absolute. of you be bitten by the acting bug. Without your mothers doing that, neither yeah. of you would be doing this. That's Am absolutely I right? not. And for the same reason, not really because of, yeah. not to, to get me friends. into the arts. No. It was just to meet to kids. Make, to meet other kids. Yeah. Exactly. The other the other thing I'll say, Garrett, off of that, yeah. I'm not from an Asian family or a Jewish family. Right. So the thing that my family was concerned about me going into acting was the morals of acting. Oh, it was seriously. The, yeah. Because I came from a very religious, religious household. Yeah. And it was the morality of the theater oh that they God. questioned. That's what, it wasn't money. Right. It wasn't money. It the was debauchery that, that all the theater debauchery. actors get, yes, get into, yes. right? There's a mythology, a false mythology that people have about the arts and, and theater especially um, uh, that a lot of parents buy into because they don't know, they haven't been educated otherwise. It right. takes, it takes in, in our cases, children to educate them about what's the reality of being in the theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. nothing against my mom, and and certainly uh, it's not pejorative. Perhaps it is, but I don't think it is. But my mother at one point asked me, "So you, you're in the theater? You must be gay. You you must be gay. That's part of the mythology." Yes, um, and my 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 mother had the same thought. She asked the same question. Yeah, yeah. 
You're serious, Robbie? Your yeah. mom asked you that? Yes. Oh my. Even though I have, gosh. you know, girlfriends and, you know, but it you're in the theater and all those uh, theater boys must be gay. They're all gay, right? You're surrounded wow. by, you must, are they trying to convert you or are they, yeah. Yeah. So that's part of the false mythology. And, you know, it's it's yes. part of the, the, the mythology that all actors are, you know, enormously rich and, and uh, yes. you know, they live the life of Riley and, it's a mythology that that people buy into that isn't true. When I was in college, Armin, I I joined a predominantly Jewish fraternity. So I got a call from my mom one day, and she was like, you know, she's like, just promise me two things. I go, what? She goes, don't don't convert to Judaism and don't turn gay. Those are the two things that she had to throw <laughs> out there. I'm like, yeah. what? I, I said, mom, if I want to be a gay Jewish Chinese person, I will be. And so I was very <laughs> adamant about it. And you hung it. up. <laughs> and I hung up, yeah. All right. I have, I have a question getting back to, so you get to college, you're an English major. Mm. And I know about you, Armin, your love for Shakespeare, your passion for that in particular. Yeah. How did that connect for you? Where did that come from? And talk about that a bit. Sure. Um, it's sort of nebulous. I mean, that's a question that I get asked on occasion, and I should have a better answer for it. <laughs> First of all, David Rhodes was a phenomenal teacher. He inspired me about the, the language, the ideas, the characters in these plays. And, um, and I just became infatuated and I wanted to learn more and more. At UCLA, I was lucky enough to do two or three Shakespearean productions, which further uh, influenced my, my desire to learn more. And then there was a little tiny, um, lovely hiccup. Um, while doing one of those plays, All's Well That Ends Well, I was playing a character named Lavash. In doing a little research, I, I tried to find out who was the first actor who ever played Lavash. And it turned out the actor's name in Shakespeare's company was a man named Robert Armin. Uh, his, his last name was spelled exactly the way my first name is spelled. Whoa. Oh, my and, gosh. And I, I'm not mystical, uh, not in any way, but I, I thought that was a sign of something. Yeah. That, that perhaps uh. I should, I should because uh, I was already interested in acting. I was interested in Shakespeare. Perhaps this is a sign that I should follow that path and and become another Robert Armin. And in fact, uh, years later, one of my agents suggested I change my name because Shimmerman was so bizarre. And I thought for all of you know a month and a half that maybe it should be Armin Roberts just to acknowledge that that uh, amazing that, that connection. But that said, I continue my studies and. Uh, Prior to graduation, just prior to graduation, another David Rhodes story who was enormously influential in my life. It was my senior year. It was the last, the final exams. Uh, I had a final exam in David's class, which turned out to be at exactly the same time that I had an audition for the Old Globe Theater in San Diego, which is a Shakespeare festival. Mm. And it was the exact same time. And I was convoluted. I really wanted to audition for that theater. But I had my my test on the same time, mm -hmm. same day, and I went to David Rhodes and uh, asked him, "Is there any way that I can skip the test, take it on another day, another hour, whatever, which is convenient for you, David, uh, so that I can do the audition?" And I remember his words very clearly. He said to me, "Yes." He said, "I've seen you perform in Shakespearean plays, and I think that's something that maybe." 
be in your future. So we will arrange it so that you can take the test on another day. Wow. I went and auditioned for the Globe. Uh, I believe there were 800 applicants for eight roles, eight apprentice roles. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the eight. Mm. So, and I got that job. And then, so again, this, this reinforcement that Shakespeare was my way into the industry, that, that I had some sort of ability to be a little bit better than, than my competition uh, in order to get these roles, uh, just made me more interested in performing in Shakespeare. And then after that, after the, the need to find work uh, was satisfied, I just became more and more interested in not just Shakespeare, but the Elizabethan period per se. And I had mm -hmm. studied the two together. And in fact, when I teach Shakespeare, and I have taught Shakespeare for many years, including a stint as the adjunct professor at the University of Southern California, mm -hmm. uh, I always integrate not just the performance, but the background, the ethos, the religion, the culture of that period so that you can better understand what's happening in the plays. A Bruin teaching a Trojan Shakespeare course. <laughs> My last David Rhodes story. When I got the, uh, when I got the job at USC, yeah. I called David up uh, and I said, will it be okay for me to do this? <laughs> um, and for just the reason you said, Garrett, and uh, yeah, I was a Bruin teaching Trojans. Yeah, the rivalry <laughs> is the rivalry is real, ladies yes, and gentlemen. It is. It yes, really it really is. is a huge rivalry. Uh, Armin, you know, we just talked to Jeffrey Combs recently, and he also spent a summer at the Old Globe as yeah. an apprentice actor, and that was a pivotal moment in his career as well. So, yeah, yeah Jeff and I have talked about that often. Uh, he had an incredibly uh, good time working at the Globe. The Globe. Yeah was a, a very fertile ground for nourishing actors that you all recognize it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I was very grateful for the people I worked with. I, I sat in the corner and watched them perform and tried to glean as much as I could about how they did the things they did. I worked with a director named Jack O'Brien, one of America's finest directors. And uh, it was great to watch him work. Uh, it, it was lovely. And, and be, during that summer, the actors there uh, convinced me to move to New York. I thought, huh. I thought that I would have a career at the Globe. It, there was every inclination. Jeff went on to do several seasons, and I thought that that would happen to me as well. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, or fortunately, and this is one of the lovely conundrums of life, sometimes the worst thing that happens in your life is the best thing that happens to you in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if, if I may take a moment to tell a, a little bit of a long story. Yeah. Um, at, towards the end of the season, while I was an apprentice, the actor I was understudying uh, for the plays um, got a TV pilot and had to leave. And the artistic director, Craig Knoll, asked me if, didn't ask me, he told me <laughs> that uh, I was going to take that actor's place. And I would and I was going to move up in the company from apprentice to an equity position. Wow. I was elated by this. I'm, I'm 22 years old. Yeah. I'm beside myself happy. In the last performance of Richard, no, of Mary Wives of Windsor, I, I had a costume in Mary Wives that was held by a string. I finished my first scene as Bardolph in, in that play and went up to my dressing room, which was way in the back, and just did a Hulk thing, just burst the costume because I thought I'd never have to wear this piece of shit again. And, and I, I, like Rumpelstiltskin, I jumped up and down on the costume, smashing it to the ground. And while I'm doing that, um, 
I hear on the loudspeaker uh, that there's that there are two actors on stage doing the scene that I'm supposed to be in in that costume. Oh no! How I had forgotten that to this day, I don't know how I could have forgotten that, but I did. Costumes in tatters on the floor. Oh my god! Um, I'm supposed to be on stage with the two actors. I can hear them ad libbing Shakespeare. Oh, ad libbing <laughs> Shakespeare. But the third actor oh. that's supposed to be there, my apprentice role was not there. Um, and oh, I, I, I slipped into something, ran downstairs, but by that time the scene was over. Uh, they glared at me when they came off stage. Oh, wow. Uh, the artistic director uh, called me into his office that afternoon and ripped me a new asshole and told me if I didn't need you to, um, to, to replace the, uh, the actor that I was replacing, that he would fire me on the spot. Wow. So I knew my future at the Globe was not going to be well. Not good. Yeah. Not good. And as I said before, uh, the actors had been telling me all summer, the New York actors were telling me all summer, I should move to New York. And um, when I realized there was no future for me in San Diego, I thought, well, maybe I should move to New York. And I did. And of course, so much good stuff happened to me because I moved to New York. So the worst huh. thing that possibly happened, I screwed yeah. myself at the Globe. But but because I did, uh, I did absolutely the right choice but to move to New York where yeah. my theater career exploded and I was an enormously fortunate young man at that time. I, I did a number of Broadway shows uh, and I shouldn't have. I'm not a singer. I'm not a dancer. I did two Broadway musicals. I don't understand why they cast me, but they did. So, What are the Broadway shows that you did, Armin? I knew that you had been in New York and, and worked on Broadway, but I don't know the shows that you were in. What were you well, in? Well, the first Broadway show you don't really especially the parts I was playing, you don't really need to sing or dance. Uh, it's a very famous production of Three Penny Opera with Raul Julia. Oh, of course, oh. at Lincoln Center. That's right, in Lincoln Center. Oh, yes. And that ran for a year and a half. Uh, as I used to say, I was trapped in a hit. I played sort of a hunchback, and to this day, when I when I hear Bobby Darin sing Mac and I, I can feel my shoulder sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Your physicality changes. Yeah. That's incredible. That's a that was when the public was running the public theater was running Lincoln Center for a brief period. Precisely, precisely. That, so that was an exciting time and 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 an incredible production. Yeah. It was an incredible production with a with a, a iconoclastic director Richard Foreman, who was not mm -hmm. interested in actors with credits, uh, but was interested in actors with interesting faces. I having one, and uh, and he cast me and and uh, and as I said, we ran for a year and a half. Yeah. And two years venues one first at Lincoln Center and then in the park and met some of my closest friends in that production were you at the Beaumont upstairs the big you were yeah, in the big the theater right? upstairs so you and I performed in the same theater I did six degrees of separation on that stage. oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, lovely theater and my dressing room was the last one on the corridor if you remember the corridor with all the dressing rooms uh, yes I'm, as you came into the dressing room area mine was the first one after the door immediately after three penny I auditioned for the circle in the square which was then a Broadway contract uh -huh. And uh, did uh, St. Joan with Lynn Redgrave. And, and in both productions was a wonderful, wonderful actor uh, who is my role model, uh, who was passed away now, but but was always an inspiration. And that man was Phil Bosco. Oh, yeah. And, and I... Phil Bosco took me under his wing and, and gave me lots and lots of wonderful advice. And because I did two shows with him, he played Mac the Knife after Raul left. Phil Bosco, just another connection there. His agent was a man named Alan Willig. Was Alan your agent by any chance? No, no, no. I because no. I, I he was my agent in New York for a while, and I met Phil Bosco quite a number of times. I never got the 
the uh, good fortune to work with him, but an incredible actor, Phil. Bonson. Incredible actor. And yes. in Shaw, which is with uh, St. Joan, is a Shavian play. No one did Shaw better than mm. Phil Bosco. Agreed. Agreed. Phil Bosco understood Shaw better than anyone. And I used to stand in the wings. There was a particular scene in St. Joan uh, with Phil and two other actors, and it was like watching the, an orchestra play perfectly. These three mm. actors were so in tune with each other. The language was so gloriously evoked uh, and understood and, and communicated. And I used to stand in the bomb and watch these three guys work in awe. I've had the good fortune to work with a lot of good people, a lot of good people. But that production of St. Joan with Lynn Redgrave and Phil and, and a, a ton of wonderful character actors was perhaps the best theater production I ever did. And will wow. it wow. was just flawless, flawless. And Lynn Redgrave was was super. Just what super. year was that, the St. Joan? 1977. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then immediately after that, I got cast in a show called Broadway. Uh, which is a George Abbott show, which mm -hmm. didn't do very well. We we closed in Boston, uh, and didn't. Uh, yeah, that didn't happen. And then a couple months went by, and I I had an audition for Richard Rogers' last musical called I Remember Mama. Oh, uh, and um, as I said, I don't sing or dance, and I had the audition. And I knew I didn't sing or dance. And I thought long and hard about not going to the audition. I thought, what's the point? Why am I wasting my time? They'll never cast me. Ever. Mm. And so about an hour before the audition was supposed to happen, I was about to call my agent and say, I'm not going. Um, I got a phone call from Santa Monica, from a friend of mine. Uh, and my acting teacher um that I had while I was in college uh -huh. um had she called to say that the acting teacher had just passed away oh wow. her name was Adrian Martin the teacher's name and when I hung up I thought again I'm not mystical but I thought this is a sign I think Adrian probably wants me to go do this audition huh. so I went I read uh they didn't ask me to sing or dance the first audition they did it the second. Huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sarah, you mentioning how you felt when you were doing that first episode. Exponentially worse. Oh, wow. <laughs> Singing and dancing for Richard <laughs> Rogers. Yes. When you're I feel for you. I feel no, for you now. <laughs> I do. Um, then I couldn't believe it. They called me back for a third one. I went in and I had me read. And then they said, can you do your song? And I started to sing, and I, I was very nervous. And, and uh, the director, a man named Martin Charney, uh, who's very famous for Annie. He wrote the, mm -hmm. he wrote and the, he wrote the lyrics and directed Annie. Uh, he got up out of the audience, out of the orchestra, and got on stage where I was, put his hand on my shoulder, and said, Armin, just calm down, calm down. It'll be fine. We're looking for someone to play this part. Uh, you you may or may not be the answer, so just just calm down, just calm down. Oh, yeah. And uh, lo and behold, they did cast me for that. And um, I'll end the story with this anecdote, which is one of my favorites. Uh, on the first day of rehearsal, 
uh, everybody was introduced, and after the introductions were made, uh, the director, Martin Charney, came up to me again, put his hand on my shoulder, and very nicely said, Armin, um, this character had a song. <laughs> wow. I thought um, you were going to say he wanted you to take singing lessons, but no, no he took no, the whole no. song away. They out. just took the song away. They just, they just took the Bye. song um, and, um, and And uh, to, to wrap this story up, the leading man in that show was a man named George Herman. And George and I became great friends. Uh, he had a friend who he introduced me to. Her name was Catherine Swank. Uh, oh, wow. And, and so George introduced me to uh, Kitty, and I've been married happily for four years. Wow. Well, at least 39 happy years anyway. That's that was uh, worth it. That yeah. was that was worth. That's a Kitty, good ending to the story. I also think it's amazing what happened at the Old Globe to cause you to move to New York. And it's it's something. There's a book that I, I've talked about this on this podcast before. There's a book that I read, and the basic synopsis is that every negative, massively negative thing that happens in your life happens to set you up for something far greater, far better, because the universe, the energy, the universal energy of the universe is always conspiring on your behalf, not going against you. And you mm. prove that. That's a perfect example wow. of what happened because you missed your cue. You weren't even on stage. And you were, the guy even said, I, if you weren't in, if you weren't here uh, replacing the guy that went to the TV show, I would have fired you on the spot right there. Right. Wow. So, and that, that extremely, cause I know you must've felt like a complete cad after that happened. Like, I can't believe this. I stomped on my, my, my costume. It's my completely dream. ruined I stomped on my big dream. Exactly. Yeah. And you just ruined your entire, you felt at the time that you ruined your entire career at that point. Um, exactly. But what I, what I do want to ask you is at any point before you got into acting, did you have in your mind another profession that you would have gone yes, into? Yes. Yes. When I went to UCLA, I, I, like yourself, I was a poli sci major. That's how I started. Okay. I thought I was going to be a, a lawyer. And and also, further back, mm. uh, as a young man in a small town in New Jersey, had a lot of um, religious institutions in it. Um, for the longest time, my family thought, I, I never thought of that, but my family thought that I would become a rabbi. Um, wow. That, that never happened. But But I think... I think some of that training from my youth uh, is in my personality. I think I think when I when I look at myself, frankly, and and see what are my pros and cons, my ability to listen and understand both sides of an argument, uh, I think, is rather rabbinical. Mm. Yeah, I would I agree. Like that. I'm sure that had a big influence on you. Mm -hmm. I, I I wanted to just make another connection, Armin, between your life and mine. I uh, I was good friends with uh, Randy Charn and Martin's son in New York, and Sasha, his daughter. Yes, I Sasha, knew both yes. of them very well. And I think that, that uh, one of my first roommates, I shared an apartment with a couple other people, and her name was Sasha, no, not Sasha, her name was... Uh, she was in, she was one of the kids in- Really, in Mama? In Mama, yeah. What's her name? I can't remember. She was, you know, was you're it, young in New York. Well, yeah, can you run through apartments. some names? Okay, Alyssa can you Wolf? Um, yes, yes. Alyssa Wolf. Yeah. Alyssa Wolf. Yes. Oh, wow. that, oh, my God. The first one you pulled out. Alyssa Wolf. We ended up getting an apartment on, well, she, it was her family's apartment on 45th between 8th and 9th, right around the corner from 
you were at the uh, that's right around the corner from where i live from manhattan plaza i lived in manhattan, manhattan okay plaza. so i was in the whitby yeah. with Alyssa wolf i can't believe you you pulled that name out of the hat what a small world Alyssa wolf had an apartment a two-bedroom apartment and we you know uh i knew some friends of her she was going to nyu at that point and so she was in Mama, and I remember the marquee was still up. Even the sh the show had closed, but that marquee stayed up for like a year, probably. Yeah, it was a horrible show. I, no offense to Marty or anybody else, and, and Marty got fired from the show three times. Oh my god! Oh, that's funny. Bet Midler said about Mama, more people came back from Vietnam than came back from I remember Mama because we lost about oh my god thirty people, 30 people were fired from uh, during the course of the wow. Um, yeah, that's I remember Alyssa, even though she was a kid in the show, she, you know, the stories of it was a rough experience. Yeah. yeah. Armin, uh, you talk about all the signs that you had and then you're not a mis mystical person. I am a mystical person. And the fact that you pulled Alyssa Wolf out over any other name to me is a sign that this collaboration is the right collaboration. Good. That's all. Good, good, good. <laughs> yes. Um, Thanks to Alyssa Wolf. This, Thanks to Alyssa Wolf. This podcast Wolf. will be, <laughs> it will be Alyssa, so successful. Alyssa Wolf's father was my dentist. Oh, my no, God. No, I, did, I knew he was a dentist. But I, yeah. I, and Robbie, Alyssa, did you go by the way, see her dentist father I did not go well? to see oh, her father. That would be crazy if They were up in uh, Scarsdale, I think, is where her family lived or something. Oh God. It, it, it might be his office was in New York. so maybe Was in the city? Yeah, he may have commuted in. And wow. Alyssa Wolf, my roommate, a few years years after we had stopped being roommates, I remember hearing from one of our roommate friends that Alyssa had gotten married or something, and she had opened a pet shop on Ninth Avenue, a pet wow. store, pet supplies. So Alyssa was in the pet supplies, but and she had opened that one and then opened a couple more. So wow! In case you're wondering, whatever happened to Alyssa Wolf, <laughs> the kid from your show, your Broadway show, she's a a pet store owner. There you or, go. Or was the last time I heard? Small world. It's a very small world. I, it these, is. These connections that you're telling me about that you have, uh, it, it makes it an even smaller world. I mean, who knew that uh, we had uh, Marty uh, both as yeah. a friend? Yeah, I I didn't know Marty that well, but I knew Randy really well. We used to hang out a lot. We go to the gym together, and he he was awesome. And then uh, Sasha, the daughter, uh, yeah, we were all. When, kind when of Marty in. passed away, I, I wrote a letter to Sasha, and she was very nice about writing me back and said that uh, her father was very proud of, of my success, and um, and he mm. was very instrumental, obviously. In yeah, I, I can't believe I've known you for twenty five, thirty years, and we've never made that connection. That's what I love about this podcast. We've learned we learn the time yeah. these kind of extended conversations that wander into places that you we've never even touched on i'm also That's, glad you did not change your name from shimmerman you did yes. not buckle to the uh, whoever that was that said oh that, you that's the weirdest name if, if you think of it i've never i've i don't know any other person of jewish background with that name that's like a unique unicorn last yeah, name it's, it's, a, it's not cohen it's not goldberg it's not you know silverstein it's it's, it's not zimmerman either you know many times people think it's going to be zimmerman and it's yeah not. it's not zimmerman it's separate it's shimaman is so it is a, it's but, another yeah no and and i wonder what shima means and, and, in and german I, I i don't know what it is in german my father was polish uh actually he's uh he was born in Poland, although now it's Ukraine, so yeah. uh, it's a little of both. But he once told me that uh, shimmer means to paint. I may be wrong, but this is what he told me. Oh. And so he became a painter. He was a house painter. Huh. So he was a shimmer man. Um, oh, wow. So did he speak Polish to you as a child when you no, were? No, I don't. I guess, again, my parents were divorced at seven. I, I, was, right. I was divorced from my father 
up until the time I was 22 or 23, hmm. when I was forced in a good way to live with him. When I moved east, yeah. ah. I left the globe and went yeah. east. You stayed with your dad then. I stayed with my dad. Ah, and that was eye-opening because you hadn't spent any time with him for God knows how long, right? And I learned a great deal about his past. He was an immigrant who walked from the Ukraine to Greece and took the boat from, because he wanted to be a Zionist. And he was what? He was about 16, 17 years old. He took a boat to Palestine. It wasn't Israel then. He took a boat to Palestine and this is this is where I think my luck gene comes from. From my dad, it is uh, it was a boatload of people. The British wouldn't let any of the people on the boat on, but somebody from the Union got on board and said, "I need two guys to do uh, painting work in in Palestine," and um, and he said, "I'll take you, and I'll take you." And one of them was my dad, and and, uh, and so my my dad moved to Palestine where he had a good life. In the meantime. All of his relatives, I had six or eight uncles and, and a couple of aunts and a grandfather, all of them were wiped out in the Holocaust. So. Oh, my God. But the fact that they picked two random people. And right when you told us that, a bunch of balloons came across your uh, your screen. I don't know why it's, that happened. Robbie, was that? It was not me. From the mystical standpoint, that was a sign. That was a sign, was a sign. again. It was like, where where did the balloons come from? I don't even know how we could put balloons on the thing. That's bizarre. One last creative question before we uh, sign out of here. Yes. How would you describe, Armin, your creative process when you're preparing to do a play or any role? Like, where do you start? You've, you've gotten your agent called, you got the job. We're sending you a script, the whole script. Finally, it's not just sides. It's the yeah. whole, the whole script. What do you start? That's a great question. And I would venture to say that there are different approaches for different plays. Uh, it's a language play. Uh, if it's a Shavian play or a Shakespearean play or, or a period piece, then I look at how the language is constructed. This is out of my rhetorical studies to see that. That aside, that, that's the easy part. To unpack that even a little bit more. So you look at how the language is constructed. How does that inform your creative choices of direction? Sure. It's a great question, Robbie. What I mean by that is if, you're a, if it's a good playwright, yeah. good playwrights know that different characters from different backgrounds speak differently. Mm-hmm. Speak differently. It's a different voice for each of those characters, and they construct sentences in a different way. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between the clowns in Shakespeare, the way they speak, and Hamlet. They're two different hierarchical yeah. members of society. So how, how does the way they speak uh, tell me, get clues about who they are and, and what, what... Where they come from, where they what come the, from. the culture of... Yeah, that that language has been constructed to represent a class or a certain ty- archetype in a way, or maybe, or... Precisely right. Yeah, so okay. that's why in a classical play, that's that's the first thing I, I look at is, okay. you know, what is the language telling me about this character? Once that's informed me, then I began to think about the, as we all do, I think about the intentions of the characters, what are the relationships... What is it that my character wants as an overarching, you know, um, intention? And then, of course, 
that's the homework you do before the first day of rehearsal. And then rehearsal comes and you meet the other actors in the play and their, their desires, their needs, their reaction to their characters will inform you about what you do. Um, my background, uh, aside from classical theater, is neighborhood playhouse technique. So the mantra there is all life comes from the other actor. And so I see what the other actor is doing and then I respond to that other life mm. in a way that is real. And, and either helps or hinders my intentions. Yeah. So the neighborhood playhouse is um is a Sandy Meisner technique for the You're most right. part, which I know Garrett took some classes there. I had very little training in that, but yeah, yeah. it's it's a lot about coming, you know, feeding off of what you're getting, intense really listening in the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, intense yeah, intense listening, and and indeed feeding off what the other actor is giving you, and so. Uh, and it, it, one of the nice things is it takes the onus off of you as far as, oh, my God, I have to come up with everything. You don't yeah. play the house technique. You just really have to respond to what the other person is giving you. You're on autopilot, pretty much. You you are not creating anything except for just listening so hard to what's being given to you. That's it, right? So That's right. Love it. So it feels very it, close. It becomes to... a partnership as opposed to a solo performance. Correct. Yeah. Yes. It feels very close to like comedy improv, like you know, yeah. uh, UCB kind of you know, Upright Citizens Brigade or mm. or Groundlings, the yeah. kind of listening and reacting in a comedy improv. Uh, techniques and the tools that they use there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it seems very similar and, to that. And because of that, I would always label myself an ensemble player. I've never thought of myself as a solo actor. Uh, uh, I am part of an ensemble. Uh, and also part of what my approach to a character is, how does my character fit into the entire piece? Mm -hmm. How do I help tell the story? The story's not about me, although I always think I'm the lead, no matter which part. I may have three lines in the show, but I am the lead. Um, <laughs> but how do how does my character fit into the, the telling of this story? Yeah. Um, and that is part of my approach as well. Do either of you, you uh, utilize that one technique where you do massive backstory homework, where you create this whole life that's not even in the, in the play or the script? I wish I did that. I don't. Okay. Uh, it's something I'm I'm bad at. Um, I don't do that. Yeah, I just get my hints from the script and then from the other actors. Gotcha. Uh, but okay. I, I don't I don't do backstory. Uh, although ironically, the novels that I've written is an enormous uh, amount of words about the backstory for the characters of twelve. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's funny for backstory for me. Mm. I I don't think I did that as a direct as an actor. Right. That was not a a. a a, a habit or a practice. It wasn't part of your process. It yeah. wasn't big backstory stuff. Yeah. But as a director, when I get a script, I will do uh, kind of a, one of my first things I do, I know we're interviewing you, Armin, this is about your creative <laughs> process, but it makes me think about. Well, I asked you, problem. Robbie, so go. Yeah. I take a script and I start, uh, I'll take a highlighter of a particular color, whatever happens to be handy. And I'll start underlining facts. It has to be a fact, not a character's opinion, not their mm. feelings. Yeah. You know, uh, I'll make notes of facts because right. the facts of that script are what everything, that's the foundation that everything grows from. Mm -hmm. And it also knowing the facts helps me with actors when we're in a scene and they're like, um, I, I just don't know how to play this. I'm, I'm right. coming in the room and I'm supposed to be angry. 
and I'll and I'll go back to my facts and I'll say, well, you know, I'm supposed to be angry with this other character, for example, making this up. But I'll say, well, we know the fact is the scene before you receive surprise information. We know the fact is you say, uh, you know, you had so much work today. Sorry, you're late. So we know you had a long day at work, stress at work. You've been stewing on this information since yesterday. That's just facts. Yeah. So I, I tend to like try to rely on facts more than backstory can have a lot of bias and a lot of opinion. And I can Definitely. start to imagine things that have nothing to do with this particular script. Mm-hmm. It's just my fantasy life going off, right? That's why I, I tend to, in fact, when actors come in and often will say, well, you know, I was thinking the backstory is his mother abandoned him and his father. And I'm yeah. like, that's not in our script. Yeah. It's, that's it's not a fact too, that I know. It's too subjective, isn't it? It's just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like if that's what you're relying on to to fuel, you know, uh, qualities of this scene, right. that's all made up. What we need to use as fuel is the facts that we know. That's yeah. why I think your your attraction to Shakespeare and this classical language, Armin, makes so much sense to me. Because what I know of it, you know, when Shakespeare wrote his plays, no one no one had thought about Freudian neuroses or psychiatry or any of that. So characters didn't speak from their subconscious because Shakespeare didn't know that existed really, not in the way we know it. So when they spoke, it was from a conscious discovering in the moment, these thoughts and ideas. They weren't thinking and feeling something and then having their neurotic childhoods interpret it into words. They were speaking it because they were, that's what I love about Shakespeare is that it's, it's, you know, they didn't have the same baggage that we modern, you know, that modern humans have with knowing what we know about how the brain works, how emotions work, how therapy works. They didn't think that way. It was, it was just what you see is what you get. Right. And unless they were being nefarious, they usually spoke from the heart. Um, Oftentimes when I'm dealing with Shakespeare, uh, either as a teacher or as a director, and an actor will say, well, so-and-so, I feel this because of this. And I say, well, where's that in the text? Where, where is that in the text? Mm-hmm. And if they can't give that to you, then you say, then you just made it up. Let me give you a very clear example, one that that might shock you. So we all know the play Hamlet, we, 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 and we all assume that Hamlet is in love with Ophelia. People for centuries have thought that. Right. There's no place in the text that says that. Right. Huh. He, says, he says two things about his relationship with Ophelia. Yeah. He said, I did love you once. Okay. Uh, uh, so that's a possibility. But yeah. immediately after that, he said, I loved you not. So which is the true one? Mm. Which is the true one? Yeah. Uh, you can't assume that Hamlet is still in love with Ophelia. He may have loved her once, but he may not be loving her now. As a wonderful teacher once said to me, Hamlet's gone off to college. We all know the experience of somebody in high school going off to college. Yes. And when he comes back from college or when she comes back from college, the relationship between his high school or her high school uh, lover is not the same. Right. Yeah. 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 So great, uh, great there's example. one. If it's not in the text, then like you're saying, Robbie, let's not let's cut it out. Not let's not yeah. count it. It's a it's, distraction. It is now. If an actor, if I'm directing and an actor is using whatever they're using, and the story is being told and it's working, I leave it alone. Like I, if that, if that's how they want to 
Yeah, so you don't take that's how they want to get there. Yeah. But when it is not working, that's when I go back to the text. It's yeah. got to be a fact of this script that, that that comes out of this text, not out of our fantasies and our made up, you know, uh, backstory. You have to you have to play what's there, not what you want it to be. You, the playwright is the primary creator. Yeah. The playwright or the scriptwriter, the script is what comes first. Sorry to the actors. Sorry to everybody else. But the script is what comes first. Yeah. And then we can embellish it. We can improve it. We can we can denigrate it. We can do anything to the script. But the script comes first. Agreed. And then as you're saying, look at the script, see what's there, and either uh, uh, work for the playwright and, and, and give him or her what they want, or find a new interpretation and, and say, well, I'm going to go in a different direction. But But be aware you're doing that. Yes, yes, absolutely. I do find that I feel that actors who do extensive backstory for their character, and I'm talking about not just paragraphs, but pages upon pages, I find that they feel that they will come off as having more life when they're on stage. And the reality is you will have more life if you're so intensely listening to what the other person's saying. That's enough. You don't have to think about, and then my character was abused when he was six, you know, and then yeah. my character did this. And I find it, it's a, a bit of a waste of time. So, you know, and so anyway, I, I just want to share the sentiment that I also, as an actor, never did extensive backstory like that. But I was just curious to see if either of you had agree more. And and what you're talking about, I I took one or two classes in the method, the method, and and that's what they focus on. Mm -hmm. uh, I always thought that was just too egotistical for me. I just you, you only think about <laughs> yeah. me, 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 and not about anybody else. Yeah, I was in an acting class once, and I was doing um, scenes from uh, an Australian play called The Sum of Us. And this character had an Australian accent and the teacher felt like I was getting too caught up in the technical side of, you know, feel, I was, I was self-conscious of my, my accent and my, it wasn't, it wasn't flowing authentically. So she said, I want you to do an exercise, sit in the chair from class, tell us a story of your childhood, just off the top of your head, pick a moment and anything doesn't have to be important, just a story. Uh -huh. So I start telling a story. I'm telling the story about my real childhood as Robbie. For like, I'm telling the story for three, four, maybe five minutes. And then she stops me and she says, okay, stop. She says, now I want you to jump to the character and tell me a story from his childhood in the accent with every, and I, because I had experienced in my body, a few minutes of telling a story, getting lost in the story, being as natural and as much Robbie as I could be, and then having to immediately do the same thing with an accent as this character. I was able to sort of physically and internally sort of experience owning this character, owning the mm -hmm. accent. So the backstory was all made up. I just made up a story about, mm -hmm. you know, it was, an, but it was an exercise. Right. I wouldn't have used that backstory. It was an exercise for the process of kind of making this character, um, his, you know, his, his dialect, his, his way of speaking, all of that to making it mine, to mm -hmm. owning it. It was okay. just about that process. It wasn't about the story right. or the backstory or any of those facts because yeah. that had to go back to the play. But that was yeah. a great exercise. Right. It's coming from your heart and not from your brain. It, it, yes. You weren't showing the audience how smart you were. You were just simply making it your own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. just making my own. And that was a great creative practice. It was just practice. But the backstory, whatever words came out of my mouth, had no value. 
to the play, really. And we've come to the end of our 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 podcast. We just want to say thank you again. And uh, yeah, we have really we've d- we've dug up some things that we didn't know anything about <laughs> regarding know, you and 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 the and the parallels that not only Robbie but myself have with your life and the people that you yeah. have interacted with and Robbie has interacted with and I've interacted with. Uh, we have a lot of parallels there. So super super cool. So thank you so and, much. And the fickleness of fortune as well of of what sometimes yes. happens. That seems ill, but turns out to be something that's great. A good thing. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning into this episode of the Delta Flyers. For all the Patreon patrons, please stay tuned for your bonus material.